This is a passage, a verse that I've been meditating on for months and months now. And I'm absolutely convinced that even a very small jot or tittle in inspired scripture is useful for us in equipping us and preparing us for our service in Christ's kingdom. So I do enjoy taking longer portions and expounding them, but I, I also uh, thrill to take a verse and hold it up to the light like a gemstone in order to appreciate its loveliness, turning it this way and that way to catch and reflect the light of divine inspiration. There is a rhythm and economy in Hebrew that is often missing in English translations, and for that reason, and like a jeweler holding up a gemstone, I invite you to follow along as I read a few translations of this verse. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The New King James renders this poetic Hebrew diamond with this translation. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. The new revised standard version puts it this way. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Reformation Study Bible has a note that uh, declares the Lord is patient with his people even when they resist him and run away. And that's what's happened here with Israel, or rather Judah. Um, he's compassionate as well as just. But he is just, and justice must be served. Even with his children, a father must discipline if he is to be faithful and loving. The New American Standard Version, the 1995 update, goes this way. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. You know, in the context of that uh, passage, this verse 18, is in the context of, of God reminding them that their folly in turning to Egypt for military alliance and help in the face of Assyria, Assyria's threatening expansion is going to meet with judgment and discipline. An interesting thing that I've pondered often here in reflecting on this is what's the divine logic going on? What, what's the emphasis here on therefore the Lord will wait to show mercy, therefore he will be exalted to show uh, favor. 
New English Bible. Yet the Lord is waiting. The Lord is waiting to show you his favor. Yet he yearns to have pity on you. The Lord is a God of justice. Happy are all who wait for him. Ezekiel 18 is a favorite passage where I, I take no pleasure, no delight in the death of the wicked, but that he repent. Jesus standing in his beloved city, Jerusalem, weeping, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you. The hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. God waits with yearning for us to turn and repent. We're not puppets on a string. In all of our rich heritage and emphasis on the sovereignty of God, let's not forget that he's given us this free moral agency that Charles Hodge spoke of so eloquently. NIV. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. There it brings out this, this small meaning that is in this Hebrew word for waiting. But he also uh, paints this picture of the judge rising to execute judgment and justice. I like the Net Bible because of the openness of the translators in their voluminous notes and explanations for why they give the rendering they do, and often they're more of a paraphrase than a, a strict wooden translation. But here's what the new, uh, the net Bible, uh, when this translation is available on the net, no charge. For this reason, the Lord is ready to show you mercy. He sits on his throne, ready to have compassion on you. Indeed, the Lord is a just God. All who wait for him in faith will be blessed. Brings out this nuance that the, the judge of all the earth is sitting on his throne who must bring judgment upon impenitence and rebellion, longs and yearns for your repentance. Of course, speaking of God, uh, the triune God, without body parts or passions, it's anthropomorphic language. But Jesus in the flesh, God the Son in the flesh, wept for us. And I often say, if there are tears in heaven, there are tears of Jesus now in glorified, resurrected body in the presence of the angels and God Almighty praying and yearning for you and for me, weeping as he watches us experience the troubles and trials that have been ordained to purify us and to protect our character. God is a God of love. He's a God of justice. And justice must be meted out perfectly and righteously. And God is patient. He's willing to wait for years and decades for you, for your loved ones who are wandering away to return. There's a famous little book I love. It's part of the works of John uh, Thomas Goodwin. 
was a great Puritan who was a member of the Westminster Assembly, a Congregationalist, by the way, but he was a man of God who understood the uh, wonderful depths of the breadth and length and height and love, uh, dimensions of God's love for us. Wrote one, and I read it first in a little paperback edition, a Puritan paperback edition, The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. He brings out the spirit of the compassionate, merciful high priest that we have who has now ascended into glory and is above all of the suffering of this world. He still has you on his heart. He still prays for you by name. And apparently yearns and even weeps even now for us. He knows your afflictions. He knows your troubles. Wait upon him. He's waiting patiently to accomplish his works. I have many other citations here. One of my favorite paraphrases that I go to from time to time uh, that I don't endorse as a really accurate translation, but uh, Eugene H. Peterson, who understood Hebrew and Greek and the, the poetic flow of it, says this in rendering this verse after speaking about all this judgment. But God's not finished. He's waiting around to be gracious to you. He's gathering strength to show mercy to you. God takes the time to do everything right. Everything. Those who wait around for Him are the lucky ones. Now, I wouldn't have chosen the lucky ones. The blessed. The blessed ones. The happy ones. But... Uh, I don't know if Eugene Peterson is still living. I'd like to meet him someday. Now, here are some key questions that I've had in the back of my mind as I've meditated on this gem. Questions to ask of God and of Isaiah as you're meditating on this. Of this text, in our efforts to rightly understand and apply it, practically speaking, to our lives in this 21st century. Isaiah spoke at the end of the, well, the 8th century um, in uh, beautiful poetic gifts and an interest in the politics and the social uh, implications of, of the life of these people. He was adamantly opposed to them turning to Egypt for help and sending ambassadors down to forge an alliance with Egypt and other nations as Assyria uh, threatened. So we ask, what historical and political context was Isaiah addressing? What gospel hope is he offering here to late 8th century Judah? You might check out Zephaniah 3, verse 8 and following that uh, H.P. read this morning in the call to worship. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us to remember. What is this mysterious logic? Some commentators have called it divine logic. The idea that there's a logic here. God's setting out the consequences of their rebellion if they don't repent and, and, and it disastrous consequences. He said, there's, a, there's a, a logical connection here. And then finally, what, what light do these Hebrew words shed on the character of God and on the pathway of our lives? So, 
some of these translations and, and the paraphrases brought out the nuance and not waiting longingly and yearning. Uh, it's just it's important for us to understand that I was reminded recently about a pastor, one of my pastors in Christ, that he'd been reading a book called Knowing Christ. It's by Mark Jones. I have read it, I don't have it. It's one of the things on my list to get and read. But it brings out the importance of us understanding that Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh, experienced real emotions. He laid aside his glory. And he had to learn things as a child. He had to learn how to be a carpenter or uh, to do the things around the household that his mother and father tried to do. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up. And matured into a man, and even in his maturity, he didn't always know in his physical existence what was happening and what was going to happen. He had to trust in God the Father. So don't miss that. So my question is what sparkling, light reflecting glory can we catch? A glimpse of as we've meditated on this, this gem, as we're meditating on this gem. Note carefully divine patience and long suffering is something that we should imitate. We should want to be like God who is, who is patient down through the centuries to accomplish his redemptive purposes in redeeming a people for itself. And setting the stage so that everything is just right, so that in just the right moment, a babe would be born in a manger. God incarnate. The angels would celebrate and the shepherds would rejoice. Things we've contemplated in recent days. <laughs> Divine patience or long suffering is commonly dealt with in theological textbooks under the category of moral attributes Specific, specifically goodness. It's an aspect of God's goodness that he's patient. But he doesn't hurry up and, and do things and rush around like we often do. He's well prepared. 2 Peter 3 and Ezekiel 18 and Exodus 33 to 34 where, where God reveals all of his glory to Moses. God, Moses longed to see the glory of God and, and God put him in the cleft of the rock and he, and he and caused his goodness to pass by. His goodness. The proclamation of the gospel and the reality of the sovereignty of God who will by no means clear the guilty. I often pray before worship like this as I did this morning driving up here that God would show us his glory with the same fervency as Moses longing to behold and understand these things to be overwhelmed by to be washed over by the love of God the majesty and sovereignty of God. <coughs> the whole epistle of Romans, and especially those early chapters, bring out this goodness of God. It's God's goodness and forbearance that leads us to repentance. He puts up with and allows so much, even in this world, all for a greater purpose. These are classic scripture passages where it's sounding on this divine attribute. But now to my outline. God's patience in salvation. First note this. It contrasts sharply with our 
impatience. Our children were young. We had a eight track table. We played in our old weight station wagon as we traveled. Bullfrogs and butterflies was one of the albums we listened to. And uh, there was a song by Herbert the Snake where he says, Don't. He said, Don't, don't, don't get impatient. When you are impatient, you only start to worry. So impatience and worry are, are connected. When we're impatient, we get frustrated. We get exasperated. We get worried about how things are going to work out. Instead of just resting back in the arms of our Savior, trusting Him, and not allowing ourselves to get worked up into a frenzy, we experience the blessing of just waiting patiently for the Lord. As a child, I remember waiting for Christmas to come. It was difficult. And my cousins and I would lots of grandmas and wait for our father and my uncle to show up after work on Christmas Eve so that we could have pancakes and, and sausages and, and of course open Christmas gifts. It was hard to be patient. We'd run out to the country road to see off in the distance if there was any indication of the clouds and dust on the country road. But yeah, the opportunity would be coming. Read Isaiah 30, the whole chapter. This morning I'll just read the first 11 verses at this point. I'll read a few more verses later, but listen to what Isaiah is saying. Here's Isaiah, a prominent person in the, the life of Israel, I mean Judah, I should say. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit. That they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt, and are not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Haines. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be of help to them, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beast of the south, these ambassadors traveling down south to Egypt were on a dangerous journey, threatened by wild beasts and bandits in the wilderness to a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall, heap, shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Ham Shabbat. Literally, that means Rahab's disciple. There's not going to be any fruitful outcome to this venture and gesture to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. Now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people 
lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. I'll stop here. One of the translators suggested here in verse 1 that there's a possible nuance or evoking of an image of them hastily casting idols by pouring molten metal into the bowl. They're frantic because Sennacherib is coming. They've seen the desolation. They've heard of the, uh, the terrifying armies approaching. They're leaving Judah desolate and Jerusalem like a pole on a hillside. And they're frantic. And instead of listening to Isaiah, they said, no, we don't want to listen to what you have to say. Get away. Out of our way. We have a path and objective to pursue. They want smooth words from the preachers in the mega churches. We, by nature, don't want to hear the convicting word of God as H.P. expounds it so faithfully week by week. We have to confess that we don't want to be corrected. And like a child who told the denied and stops up his ears and won't listen to mom or daddy, turns away with a closed mouth because I don't want those sweet potatoes. They don't taste good. Isaiah 30, verses 15 to 17. For thus says the word of God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall be, you shall be saved in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. Rather, therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. Here's this, this uh, sad story. God longs for them to just rest in his arms in quietness and confidence. Be still and know that He is God, that He will deliver you. And yet we so often get slid up into a frantic frenzy and try to take things into our own hands and turn to idols, frantically like Judah, hastily pouring molten oil into the mold to make an idol to deliver us, to turn to the military might of Egypt. Whatever it may be, I know that you have been tempted to turn away in impatience rather than to wait on God and His goodness. But Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord will wait. Therefore, the Lord will wait. 
that he may be gracious to you. Literally, therefore the Lord will wait to favor you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You see, God's patience is, is, is a wonderful thing to contemplate, but notice how our impatience Impatience sharply contrasts with it. We're often that way. I think clearly sees a logical connection here between Judah's covenant treachery and God's astonishing patience with his wayward people. They're being traitors, treacherous. They have, in their infidelity to God, turned to idols and to a nation that cannot deliver them from this terrible scourge of Assyrian armies. The armies lay desperate and destroyed the cities, 40-some 40 40 cities, and many villages they just burned and destroyed and, and carried off into captivity and buried thousands of bodies in, in open graves. They were terrorists, and they were kind encircling Israel or Judah, Jerusalem. They got the most famous in archaeological history is Lachish. And the, the arrowheads have been found. And the, the iron balls that were used in their slings, they're on display in museums. The key issue here, according to Barry G. Webb, the uh, commentator in the IDP Old Testament Bible Speaks Today series says that the key issue in chapters 28 to 35 is whether Judah, and in particular its leaders, will rely on Egypt or on the Lord in the face of the growing threat posed by the ever-increasing power of Assyria. This is the tension and the drama of those chapters in this section in Hebrew, in Isaiah. There's a well-known translator uh, in a translation that uh, I don't recommend for everyday use, but uh, I, I have a copy of it to, to consult Robert Alter's uh, translation. He says these comments, the prophet here, and elsewhere assumes a vehement stance with a political debate. There's a raging political debate. We don't know much about that. Not going to do. There's this raging debate. Should we trust in the Lord, in whom we are in covenant, leave with, and just wait? Or should we send ambassadors, our prominent men, down to Egypt to forge an alliance with Egypt and other nations to stand against Assyria. In the last four years of the 8th century BC, there was a party in Jerusalem that advocated an alliance with Egypt against the imminent military threat of the Assyrian Empire, and Isaiah viewed this policy as a catastrophic error. Isaiah 31, chapter 31, verse 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many 
and in horsemen because they are very strong. But who do not look to the Holy One of Israel and seek the Lord? Now, if Israel was foolish to turn to Egypt, how much more should we reflect upon the fact that it's folly for us to cast idols, to turn away from the Lord, or to find solutions to problems rather than turning first and foremost to God and then letting Him guide us in our decisions. J. Alec Montier, one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah, says, A logic of God is at work. Judge and punish he must, but forsake his purposes he will not. God is patient with you. And in your occasional folly, you will wander away. Wait the way. And he will be faithful and perfect in his fatherly chastening. And in that moment when you are awakened and convicted by the Holy Spirit and return again, he will bless you beyond what you can imagine. Judgment must intervene, says Peter. Therefore, he will wait in order to be gracious. Therefore, he will rise to show you compassion. His grace is his sovereign determination to bless the undeserving. His compassion is the overflowing of his passionate love for his people. Justice is the right way and means, is the right way, and it means making exactly the right decisions at exactly the right time. God has a way of orchestrating the events of our lives so that he is exalted. If we are trusting in Egypt and he hears our cry and delivers us, then Egypt is exalted. But if he waits until we humbly, contritely turn to God and like the public and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, then he's exalted. And it's a glorious display of his compassion and mercy, one that we should marvel at and proclaim with faithfulness. The second thing I am noting here is that God's patience in salvation promotes his glory. There's a, a book by John Piper that I've been reading lately, a big fat book on Providence, and it's a light work. I, I email often at uh, John Piper's insights and his and the influence of Jonathan Edwards upon him through the years. But uh, in that uh, book, he explores this problem we have with thinking about glorifying God. Our chief thing is to glorify God who joined forever. And we think of people being self-centered and uh, wanting to be complimented for their, for their words. But C.S. Lewis, he quotes C.S. Lewis there, on page 54, he says that uh, C.S. Lewis had never noticed this one thing. All enjoyment, no well, spontaneously overflows into praise. C.S. Lewis was, uh, for a long time, absurdly denying to do what what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we want and value. 
Who said the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me? I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. And you, and you can think of your rivalries and your jealousies of other people who excel in something that, that you don't think smell quite uh, magnanimously at. I had never noticed that all enjoyment, no wealth, spontaneously overflows into praise. The world brings with praise. Think about it. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, waters praising the countryside. Focus on the world of beautiful mountain scenes and flowers. How difficult was this? Players praising their favorite games, excelling at their musical instruments, performing to our delight. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, all that food you had this week, that spread on the bank of table, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, but indeed we cannot help doing about everything else we value. How many times this week did you praise mom for the meal or dad for what he did or, or your friends or loved ones? I think we delight to praise when we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. C.S. Lewis was gifted uh, an eloquent speaker and writer just knew how to, how to shame words that would impact us. Kaiser and Wagner's, Wagner's History of Israel is a big, beautiful, colorful history of Israel with lots of pictures and archaeological uh, insights. The historical, political context of late 8th century BC Judah is important in understanding this verse. Jews' rebellion against Assyria. Here is Hezekiah, who eventually boldly rebels against the Assyrians, to whom they were paying outrageous uh, tribute. You can read about this in 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah 37. And Hezekiah, I think, foolishly, fell into this desire to turn to Egypt. And yet he knew that God was faithfully initiated to accomplish great reforms. And he had prepared the city for siege in amazing uh, technological successes. Digging a tunnel through solid rock for a third of a mile to, uh, to divert the water from uh, spring Sihon into his city. Finally, when uh, in this whole 
episode in Hezekiah's life after he'd been on death's on a deathbed at death's door. God answered his prayer and gave him 15 more years of life. After showing the Babylonian emissaries all their riches and being rebuked, he was finally driven to his knees when he received the letter from the Rebbe the general, the official officers who, who stood outside the city taunting them, trusting in, in, in Yahweh, and mocking him and saying, he won't be able to deliver you. In the midst of all this desolation in Judah and a military triumph, Hezekiah went to the temple and humbly and contritely cried out to God to show his glory to deliver them. And God answered their prayer. That night, death angel came and 185,000 soldiers died. Sennacherib went home in shame. So ashamed, he didn't even mention it in any of his descriptions that I archaeologists did that. All he could say was, I, I had Hezekiah trapped in Jerusalem like a prisoner, like a caged bird. But he didn't inscribe to memory the rest of it happened. God's patience and salvation promotes his glory. And often we come to our most desperate moments when we cry out to God and he hears our prayers and he, he delivers in an unexpected and surprising way and saves us. But finally, God's patience and salvation aims at glorious gospel blessings. Read the rest of Isaiah 30 and the hope that they would one day be returning from captivity and settling in the land, a picture of our eternal glory. Read Zephaniah again. Look at Romans and think about God's purposes in provoking the Jews to jealousy by bringing multitudes of Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. Study carefully 2 Peter 3 and Romans 1, 2, and 3. And reflect upon the fact that God is a God of justice. He will chasten his disciples, his children. Isaiah, uh, I mean, rather, Jeremiah, in another place, says, Lord, chasten me, but in judgment, that you were worthy. Not in anger, lest I be little or crushed. Lord, I know I need to be corrected from time to time. And I know I'm often stirred up into a frenzy of worry by being impatient. But I want your blessings. I want to know and experience your love in deliverance. I want to know and experience this blessing of being quiet and confident in your, in, in, in your arms, trusting in your strength to deliver me. This points us to the gospel. This points us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That babe born in a manger who grew up to become our sympathetic high priest who, who knew no sin and yet became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Look to Him. Trust in Him in your darkest hours. Be quiet patient and wait with longing for God is waiting longing 
He will show you favor and grace. God is a God of mercy. 